Good evening, everybody. It is really wonderful to be with you again after um, after some time away. I'm sure that I've either already had or I'm going to soon have conversations with um, probably just about all of you about my vacation two weeks ago out west with my friend Isaac. But just to cut the tension about it, here are two of the three big things that I learned. First, I learned that hiking up something and then down it is a lot easier than hiking down into something and then back out of it. And second, I learned that the legendary UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico, didn't happen in Roswell. It happened, in fact, more than 70 miles north of Roswell. And the reason that we associate it with the town of Roswell, as I found out personally, is because there is nothing whatsoever, most notably including a gas station, anywhere remotely close to Roswell, New Mexico. I looked everywhere, but I didn't see any aliens on the trip. I did survive. And there's also a third thing that I learned on my trip, too, but I'm going to save it for the end tonight. In any case, time away um, was really good. And among other things, time away gave me a chance to do something that I'm trying to do more of this year, which is to read books for fun. I've been in seminary for two and a half years now, and although it has been a very good experience, it really has, all the like the thicker theology books have put a damper on my motivation to read for fun. So one of the fun books that's on my list right now that I'm almost finished with is a novel that was turned into an HBO miniseries last year. And it's called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. If you didn't see the series, um, I'll do my best to give a plot summary here. It's the story of a traveling Shakespeare company set 20 years into the future after a devastating flu puts an end to civilization as we know it. The book was written in 2012, but as I'm as you can imagine here, right? Like it's taken on more weight in the last few years. In any case, one of the core ideas of this book and the reason that this book centers on something that might seem as irrelevant to a post-apocalyptic story as Shakespeare plays is because survival alone is insufficient for real life. That's one of the core ideas. Survival alone isn't enough for real life. In fact, it's something that in the novel and in the show, the Shakespeare company stencils on their wagons. It's a line from an old Star Trek episode. Survival is insufficient. Now, this resonates pretty deeply with me right now because in our own post-disaster moment, I think many of us are wrestling with exactly this tension. We're survivors as individuals, yes, and also as revolutionists, this church. And the question in front of us right now is whether or not that's enough what does it mean to get back to normal? Was normal what we really needed or what we still need? Maybe your answer for what makes life full and meaningful 
isn't Shakespeare, right? I know that even though I'm an old English teacher, Shakespeare isn't what I'm looking for in in my post-apocalypse. But where is beauty for me? Where's joy? Where's life in my day-to-day living nowadays? One thing I've always appreciated about stories that are set like this story is in in a post-civilization world is that stories like that help us to realize that the biggest cost of going into survival mode for us is that our world and our concerns shrink down to these tiny little bubbles of ourselves or our families or maybe, depending on the story, our community. But the cost of shrinking down these stories tell us. The cost of turning our attention exclusively inwards is that you lose the ability, and more importantly, you lose the imagination to look outwards for anything other than threats. You're always on the lookout. This week, we are once again talking about the parables of Jesus which is something we're doing throughout the year this year in between our other major sermon series. And in particular, tonight, we're going to look at the faith parables that Jesus tells, which means that we need to start with a clear definition of what exactly faith is. And here's what I would say. Faith is confidence in the promises and character of God. Not certainty, confidence. But to feel that confidence, we have to do something that we simply cannot do when we are in survival mode. And that is we have to look outwards. Because confidence is something that can only grow in relationship. This is what differentiates confidence from certainty, which is something that can grow alone in our minds with information. If what we need right now in order to experience the kind of hope that can take us beyond just surviving from day to day, if what we need is faith, the only way that we can get it is by opening ourselves up to trust, even making ourselves vulnerable so that we can experience God's love and God's provision and God's wild generosity towards us. Last time out in this series, I tried to talk about seven parables in a single sermon, and uh, I did this with mixed results. This time, my goal is just two, so I'm feeling a lot better about our chances. And the first of them is found in Luke 11, and it begins with the entirely unhelpful intro in Luke 11.1, One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. In any case, wherever this place is, Jesus' disciples see him, and they ask him how he does it, how he prays. And Jesus responds to them with the Lord's Prayer, which is something that we all prayed together just a few minutes ago in our service. And then immediately afterwards, right after sharing the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells the disciples this in verses 5 through 10. He says, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight 
and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now there are at least two things, I think, for us to consider here. First, is we need to know what is the connection between what the first neighbor asks for and prayer, which is the the context for Jesus sharing this parable. And then the second thing we need to know is what is the connection between the second neighbor's response here and God's response. So let's look at the first neighbor first. In this story, the first neighbor has received a visitor from out of town late at night. Now, culturally speaking, this is both a tricky thing and also a common thing. The customs of Jesus' day prioritize hospitality above almost all else. So here's the catch, right? The arrival of the visitor is something that must lead to an offer of shelter and food for the visitor. That is a cultural necessity. But the late time of day of the visitor's arrival catches this first neighbor unawares. But here's the trick, right? It shouldn't have caught him particularly unawares. It wasn't unusual to travel at night in the desert. So a nighttime arrival isn't that that unusual. And it's the responsibility of the first neighbor to have things available. It's his job to be hospitable. And what's notable here is that he's failed that job. He's unprepared to do what he is culturally obligated to do. So this puts him in an awkward position in the story because he has to choose, right? He has to choose between failing to appropriately honor his guest, which is a big deal, but at least it's kind of a private deal, private embarrassment between himself and his friend, the traveler, or the first neighbor can choose to seek his neighbor's help, which is, of course, a public embarrassment, one that will linger in his community. What's notable is that he chooses the public embarrassment. He goes to ask for help even in the middle of the night. So why does he do that? You can, you can imagine the calculus, right? You might have just made it a second ago when we were describing the scenario, scenario for yourself, right? The, the traveling friend is somebody who will probably understand and forgive the first neighbor. There's, there's no need to damage his reputation in the community. But to the first neighbor, reputation is less important than fixing his mistake. Reputation is less important than doing what he is culturally obligated to do. And Jesus describes that priority and that behavior as the man's shameless audacity. His willingness to reject his fear of shame in order to boldly ask for help. 
And in doing so, what might seem like an act of weakness, which is asking for help, is transformed here into something audacious, specifically because the first neighbor is willing to count his shame as nothing, to refuse to let it keep him from caring for his weary friend. This is shamelessness. Now, to connect this behavior to prayer, what we see here is that prayer starts with admitting a personal need for help. Prayer begins with recognizing the limits of yourself. Now, when we are in survival mode, we fight really hard against those limits, against seeing or experiencing or coming up against those limits. When we are trying to maintain our reputation in our community, we fight hard against those limits. But the point here is is that to find real faith, which is the only thing which, as we said at the beginning, can be sufficient, we have to discover our shamelessness about our limitations. We cannot hide them. And in fact, they need to be embraced. But of course, what makes this parable uncomfortable is that it doesn't go how we might want it to go. That's also what makes it very strange, I think. We want the second neighbor to see his friend's boldness, his friend's willingness to be embarrassed. And then we want the, the second neighbor to protect the first neighbor from that embarrassment. When we listen to the story, we want the second neighbor to have grace for his friend. So it's strange when he doesn't, that instead he complains and he protests the favor. He, he makes sure that the first neighbor knows something that the first neighbor already knows, which is that he is asking for something that is an imposition. He makes sure that the first neighbor knows that he screwed up, which again is something that he does already know. So the question is this, why does Jesus tell his disciples this story about this kind of neighbor at this moment, immediately after teaching them how to pray, how to talk to God? how to make requests of God. Why tell the story then? Well, if you have been reading along in a Bible, you know that I cheated earlier, right? Because the answer is in the verses that come next. In the very next verses, Jesus says, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now Jesus' point here is that even your regular, everyday, sometimes cranky, sleepy neighbor will help you out eventually, even if they give you a hard time about it. But God is not your neighbor. Instead, God keeps calling you his own precious child. So how does a father 
answer a midnight request? How do you think God, your Father, will respond to a request that's humble and audacious, willing to admit a mistake? I think this is why this parable, which is so closely connected to prayer, can also be grouped here among these parables about faith. It's not so much about how we ask as it is about who we think we are asking. But in order to feel the comfort and the delight and the relief and the joy of having our request graciously answered by a God who loves us, who loves his children, we have to first have the shameless audacity to ask him. We have to be willing to accept the the so-called embarrassment of not being perfect, something that God sees through anyway, something that we know is a sham. And we have to do that. We have to do that because our faith, our confidence in him isn't something that can exist just in theory. It's something that can only exist if we learn to lean on it, rely on it, so that we can experience it and it can give us hope. The second parable for tonight comes from Matthew 21. And to set the stage... Here, uh, this story is shared on the Monday of the last week of Jesus's life. Now, on the previous day, on that Sunday, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples. And Jesus was welcomed on that day as the Messiah, as the, the great hope and the future king of all Israel. This is Palm Sunday, right? We celebrate this around Easter time. And then after Jesus is welcomed in, or after Jesus was welcomed in on the previous day, he went not to the palace of the governor, right, which is where he was expected to go, but instead Jesus went to the temple, and he went to the temple courts in particular, and he drove the merchants out there. And then, even after driving out those merchants, instead of doing what was expected of him, instead of going into the temple to maybe give some great rallying speech, fostering rebellion, proving that he is this deliverer, this Messiah that people have been waiting on for centuries, instead of doing that, Jesus sits down in the courtyard with a group of children. He plays with them, and then to the folks who stick around to listen to him, he praises the innocence of those children's faith over the expectations and the indignations of the temple priests. So it's safe to say that that the Messiah's arrival on that Sunday doesn't go the way anyone is expecting it to go. And now, on this second day in the city, Jesus goes back to the temple. And this time he goes specifically with the goal of talking to the elders there, to the priests there. And in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, we hear this, this, this moment of encounter, of confrontation. Jesus goes to them and he says to them, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, the son answered. But later, the son changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to his other son. And he said the same thing. And that son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. 
which of the two did what his father wanted? And, and the leaders gathered there, answered Jesus and say, the first. And Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So what's happening here? Well, I think there are again two considerations. First, what is Jesus saying to his literal audience there in the temple courts at this particular moment in his story? And then second, what is Jesus saying to us so many centuries later about our own faith? Well, to the elders, what he's saying is that they are much like the second son in the story, right? By leading the faith practices of the people in Jerusalem, practices which center on the hope of the coming Messiah, they are saying to God, their father, I will, sir. They will do the work that he has asked them to do to anticipate and then follow the Messiah. But then they fail to do that because if we read their behavior generously, they do not realize the father's urgency in his request. They don't realize that the work that they're being asked to do is ready to be done now. We know from the gospel tradition that the religious leaders of Israel at this time have not abandoned hope for the Messiah. They just don't believe the Messiah can possibly be Jesus. They're sure of it. And the problem here is that they trust far too much in their certainty about that verdict and about the scriptures. And they use that certainty to ignore not only Jesus, but they also used that certainty previously to ignore John the Baptist, who had come to give them fair warning about what was happening. But it turns out, of course, that God, their father, is not looking for overconfidence and certainty. He's not looking for a quick, I will. What he's looking for is shameless audacity. And that is what the first son has. The first son says the wrong thing at first, right? He tells his father no. But then he realizes that he was wrong. And then without boasting or otherwise making sure that the father gives him any special credit, in fact, knowing that he won't get any credit, he simply goes out to do what he was asked to do knowing that going late isn't really going to make up for his initial mistake. Which tells us that, that that son has let go of his pride. And Jesus says that he's the one who actually does the Father's will. Now, in the story, right, Jesus connects this son to the so-called sinners of Israel, the people whose, whose mistakes are flamboyant and obvious the people whose mistakes keep them from community among the religious of the city. And yet, despite these mistakes, Jesus says these folks are the ones who are actually well on their way to God's kingdom ahead of the others. And the reason they're ahead of them, the reason they're on their way, is because they've been willing to let go of their pride and to trust 
and to do and to lean on God's promises to them. The leaders are waiting on a Messiah who's going to take down Rome and then a leader after taking down Rome who's going to celebrate them for their faithfulness and their patience. But Jesus is saying yet again to these leaders, Rome isn't your problem. And in fact, the ones the leaders have derided because of their shameless audacity. The sinners of Israel are already finding the kingdom that everybody says they've been seeking. So these these here are the twin components of real and living and hopeful faith. First, the humility to admit weakness and mistakes. And then second, the audacity to pursue God anyway. To trust that God's will is not for you to be someone admirably self-sufficient, a survivor, but that his will is for you to be a child, depending on his love and blessing for you. That his will is not for you to be somebody who only looks inwards for strength, but to precisely be someone whose weakness is evident and who can only look outwards for it. Two days after Jesus talks, actually three days after Jesus talks to these temple priests, these same people are going to refuse the Roman governor's offer of mercy. And they're going to insist that Jesus be put to death by the state. Four days after Jesus talks to these leaders in the temple courts, he's going to be crucified to death on a cross between two common themes. When we think of Jesus' death, I think we often think of big and complex Christian ideas like the imputation of sin and sacrificial atonement. And all of that stuff is true, and all that stuff is important and good to think about. But we might also think of this. In order to make the radical, upside-down kingdom of God unmissable for us, a kingdom where the meek inherit the earth, where the weak are made strong, where the last are made first, the very Son of God has the shameless audacity to choose humiliation and disgrace and embarrassment and death at the hands of his neighbors in order to provide for travelers who have come to him in the night. This past week, I was reading the account of the crucifixion in the Gospel of John, and I noticed something that I had never noticed before. There are two men in John who take Jesus' body off the cross and gently lay it in the tomb. The first is Joseph of Arimathea, who the text says is a secret follower of Jesus, and he's the guy whose tomb it is that Jesus has placed in. But the second man is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who we read earlier in the book, came to Jesus under cover of darkness in order to ask him what it meant to be born again. Nicodemus's fear of public shame had previously kept him from admitting his relationship with Jesus, right? But in this moment, when Jesus' closest disciples have all scattered to the four winds, it's Nicodemus who, despite previously saying no, 
goes into the Father's fields to do the day's work. Right now, we feel like survivors, right? Just scraping by. It feels like we have nothing more to give. And I get that. And I'm feeling that too. But there is hope in admitting our weaknesses and asking for help from our Father. Jesus' crucifixion is intended to make this tangible. The humiliation of a God on a cross who's then on his way to being king of all. And we are invited to come under his wings, under his arms, if we can just see our need, if we can accept a position of humility, of limitation, in the same way that he, the one person who did not need to, once did. And if we can accept those limitations, we can discover that we're safe and seen and heard and redeemed and delivered and restored and lifted up and made whole again. At the beginning, I promised a third lesson from my trip two weeks ago, and here it is. When I left town, I was a mess. I was past my limits, like that car north of Roswell. I was running on fumes. And what I realized with embarrassment and humiliation while I was gone was that I had dropped a lot of balls on my way out the door here. I left messes that people I love had to clean up at home, and I left those messes here at church too. Two Saturdays ago, Claire and Garrett and Sarah and Sean and and even some of you guys too felt the burdens of that, and I'm sorry. And when I came home, I felt shame about not being able to do more than survive before I left. But here's what I'm experiencing right now, and in a way that is so much more profound than I've experienced in a long, long time in my life, and that is that people really love me. People love me. People shared my burdens. People helped to clean up my messes. When you chase survival, when you chase self-sufficiency, the best you can ever hope for is appreciation. But when you admit weakness, you can experience love. If faith is confidence in God's promises and God's character, the only way you will ever truly discover it is by depending on him. Survival is insufficient. If you are in survival mode, let God in. Begin with shameless and audacious prayer. And then keep going by letting the people of God here in the church share your burdens with you. The biggest obstacle to your faith is not trusting that you are loved. I'll repeat that. The biggest obstacle to your faith is not trusting that you are loved. But to discover love, 
you have to lean on it. Better yet, to discover love, you have to accept it. You have to let God's love for you wrap around you. You have to let it penetrate your defensiveness. The fact that you built walls over the last two years to protect yourself makes a lot of sense. It's a natural thing to have done. Survival, especially in tough times, requires that kind of behavior. But survival isn't the goal. Life is. And what is life if not a gift, lovingly and generously given by a parent to their child? Life is here for you. Truly it is. If you can just bring yourself to ask for it.